You know, years ago, uh, I was at a, a, a bookstore in Pasadena called Archives, one of those real gem of a little bookstore that's tucked away deep in, in downtown Pasadena. And amongst all the aisles and stacks of gold, great old tomes and books, I found a, a secondhand Bible, old King James Version, uh, well-worn, well-loved by its former owner. But what made it very interesting to me for the purposes of this morning was inscribed on it, scribbled on the margins, was this particular note right at Galatians 5, verses 16 to 26, the passage we're looking at this morning. And in what looked like the handwriting of a young man, young boy, was scribbled these notes. Inside of me, there is an eagle that wants to soar, dot, dot, dot. But inside of me, there's also a hippopotamus that wants to sit and wallow in the mud. And I thought, wow, what, what a vivid contrast of animals, a soaring eagle high above and a hippo just wallowing in mud, heavy and just stagnant. But also a very accurate depiction of the two trajectories of life that Paul is describing in Genesis, or excuse me, Galatians chapter 5, isn't it? Galatians 5, verses 16 and 26, is one of the richest passages in the entire book. It is as rich as Galatians 4, 12 through 31 is dense. Do you remember our study of that chapter where Paul talks about the role of the law and the two covenants and the allegory of, of Sarah and Hagar? Well, as dense as that section was, this section is as rich. And in just these 10 verses, Paul talks about, he addresses four major topics. He talks about the, the inner conflict that every Christian feels between the, the pull of what we once were and the pull of the promise of what Christ has made us. Paul talks about the, the, the role that our desires play, the, the powerful role that desires play both in our growth in Christ and the role that our desires can play in obstacles in our growth to Christ. He talks about the amazing contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, and then these four amazing verbs that all have to do with kind of being controlled by the Spirit, walking, living, being led, and keeping in step with the Spirit. All of these just in 10 verses. Now, every single one of those have huge traction for the way we practically live out our Christian life, and they deserve separate treatment. So that's what I decided to do this week as I was studying that. There's no way we can cover all four of these in one sermon and do them justice. So today is really part one of what's become a three-part sermon in gospel character. Now last week, we talked about the very foundation of gospel character was the gospel freedom, the freedom we have in Christ accepted by Him to stand in God's presence. And that freedom isn't defined as the world defines freedom as personal autonomy, but that freedom is defined by obedience. We are freed not to do what we want, but as Paul made very clear last week, we're freed to do what we ought to do. Right, so the, the amazing reformer Martin Luther says in his book on Christian liberty, which is another way of saying Christian freedom, uh, there's a, a picture of Ralph Fiennes from the movie Luther. He writes this, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none, but he's also a perfectly servant of all, subject to everyone. And that's what Paul talked about last week, especially in verse 13, that our freedom actually is given to us to be servants, and in the original language, it uses the word, be free to be slaves. 
And so we really want to spend time on understanding the application of that freedom to our lives. So we're going to make this a three-part sermon, but because I want to guard uh, our reflection service that's coming up in a few weeks, and particularly our Mission Sunday emphasis, where we have Ralph Van Pearson from Tijuana coming up, we are actually going to punt parts two and three of this sermon into after when we complete the book of Galatians. So it's actually going to be a little bit, a bit of a pause, and we're going to back to parts two and three once we complete the book. So today, what I want to do with these 10 verses is I just want to set the table for you and give you the appetizer of really what's going to be coming in parts two and three. Now, to do that well, I need to directly address an issue that we've kind of been circling around for several weeks in the book of Galatians, and that's the topic of salvation. Now, historically, when Christians have talked about salvation, we have used one word, uh, salvation, to capture a whole host of events, of realities, and actions that's taking place when one becomes a Christian. And we use the word salvation as kind of a conceptual shorthand that captures all of it. But salvation, my friends, is such an amazing, multifaceted reality that to truly understand what is taking place and to have that uh, permeate our lives, we need to understand a little bit of its components. Salvation basically has three parts to it. There's what's called justification, which is what we've been spending most of our time in Galatians talking about, that you have been made right with God because of the work of Jesus Christ. You stand forgiven, accepted in Christ. You're justified. But then there's something called sanctification, where we're this ongoing process of more and more day by day becoming like who Jesus is. And then there's this third aspect called glorification of what happens when this life is ended and we are in the presence of God where faith gives way to sight. We're with Him. Uh, And and there's so much more to be said. We haven't even said anything about faith, repentance, regeneration, all these aspects that are included in our salvation, but those three are enough, at least for one Sunday morning. So salvation basically has those three components to it. And I want to look at a couple of verses of Scripture on the screens behind you, behind me, to show you how these are teased out. Not any one scripture uh, puts all these components together because they're so, 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 tense or so dense, but there are scattered around. So look at Romans chapter 6. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, notice that theme, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's an eternal life. Chapter 8, verse 30, below that. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified two more. 1 Corinthians 6.11, Paul writes, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And finally, 2 Thessalonians, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So you see that there are those themes interwoven, and sometimes the actual word appears, and sometimes not, but the concept is there, because salvation is such a huge topic throughout all of the New Testament. So to put it differently and more concisely, in justification, that is your new position in Christ. In sanctification, you are becoming in practice what you are in your new position And in glorification, you complete the process by being perfected in Christ. One is your position, one is your practice, and one is your perfection. Now, in our time in Galatians, we have already laid the foundation for the work of justification. 
That's, that's all we have been talking about really since September when we started our series, that it was a work entirely done by Jesus Christ and His cross work, and there's nothing else we could have added to it. There's no way we could have accomplished it because this is simply impossible. We cannot earn our right standing before God. There's nothing we could do to merit His acceptance. The standard is just too high. Jesus said in Matthew 5.48, it's perfection. The standard is perfection, and Romans 3.23 says, we've all fallen short of that perfection. So there's no way anyone could possibly earn right standing with God. And sin, the very counterpoint to salvation, is something that we are all enmeshed in, not just the bad things we do, but James chapter 4 says it's also the good things we should do and don't. So it's not just the things we do that are wrong, it's the things we should do that are right, and we're not doing it, but it's not even, that's not even half of it. Sin is part of the fabric of who we are which manifests in the wrong things we do or the apathy to not do the right. Those are just the the presenting problems, but sin is deeper. It's the very fabric of who we are, rebels against a holy God. So there's no way salvation can be earned. It is impossible. Good works do not get you the right standing before God. We spent months talking about that, which is exactly why this the gospel's good news. <laughs> because we couldn't do it, Jesus did it for us. We recall Galatians 3.24, as a matter of fact, the whole point of the law was not to establish for us more moral hoops we have to jump through. Galatians 3.24 said that's misunderstanding the purpose of the law. The law was given to make you realize there's no way you could do this. The law was to be our tutor, our our teacher, our pedagogos, our mentor, our steward, pushing us to Jesus Christ, not pushing us to ourselves and our own works. That's the whole point of the law. And you recall in Galatians 4, chapter uh, 4, verse 4, excuse me, in verse 6, beautifully divided the very thing I'm talking about. In chapter 4, verse 4, it talked about the objective work of the Son being sent to accomplish our justification. And then verse 6 talked about the subjective aspect of the Spirit now being sent to shore up that relationship that we got in our justification. And so Paul has been methodically building this argument. And up until now, in Galatians, it's been the work of the Son in our justification that's been emphasized, and we haven't really talked much about the work of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, it wasn't until chapter 3, verse 2, that we even mentioned, we even saw His name mentioned. And again, it is a He, the Spirit's not in it, He's not, it's not a force, He's a person, third member of the Trinity. He doesn't even get mentioned in Galatians until chapter 3. And then only in chapters 3 and 4, He only gets mentioned four times, I believe, but in chapter 5, He gets mentioned eight times and then four more times in chapter 6. What's my point? My point is, as Paul transitions into the practical matter of living the Christian life, there's a corresponding emphasis he places on the Holy Spirit. We see that lexically. We see that actually just in the word count of the Bible. So when I talked about in the the triune God part of our salvation, we said it's the Father that plans, the Son that secures, and the Spirit that applies it. We're seeing that dynamic play out just in the word count. 
So as Paul starts to focus on practical living, he starts to focus on the Spirit. Now here's an amazing takeaway. Just as Jesus Christ was the primary agent in our justification, the Holy Spirit is the primary agent in our sanctification. And we see it right here in Galatians. In other words, a believer can no more change his or herself than she or he can save himself. Amazing. We do not have the resources to live the Christian life any more than we had the resources to enter into the Christian life. And so what Paul is showing us, he says, look, in short, living the Christian life is under the direction and power of the Spirit of God Himself. That's what he's getting at here in Galatians 5, 16 and following. So our passage, and you can begin to see why there's no way we could do this in one sermon. Our passage breaks down into four component parts. We'll have it on the screens behind me. It is the command to gospel character in verse 16, the battle for gospel character in verses 17 and 18, the contrast of gospel character in verses 19 to 23, then the key to gospel character in verse 24 and 25. Now, there's no way we're going to get to all of those in detail today, and that's why we're going to punt getting into the details of that for the time at the end of our series in Galatians. When we pick up part two, we're actually going to look at the dual nature of the Christian as well as this dual nature of desire and and then part three, we're really going to look at the fruit of the Spirit contrasted with the, the works of the flesh and how do we walk in or by the Spirit of God. Okay, so, so as we look at it this way, notice in verse 16, I'm sorry if you can back that slide up one more time, there's the command in verse 16, the reason it's a command is because there is a battle going on and the reason it's a battle is because there's such a huge contrast in these two natures. And then Paul ends by giving us the key to getting gospel character. So that's kind of how we're going to roll into our passage in these three sermons. Okay, so let's look at it one at a time. The command to gospel character. Verse 16, Paul writes, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Let's stop there for a second. What can be very frustrating for for many Christians experience is, I, I think we understand we are saved because of Jesus, but the frustration comes in because sometimes beyond that, there isn't the corresponding growth or change that, that we so often see in the New Testament. And I think principally it breaks down to some of the issues being discussed here. Number one, it's because some of the Galatians 2.20 principles haven't been absorbed. You remember that? We did a whole sermon just on that one verse. Galatians 2.20, the two driving principles were this, new life in Christ only begins when your old life is dead. And this is something that, that we have to be clear on. The call to be a Christian is not necessarily a call to put, put Jesus onto an already good life. Things are okay, but Jesus will make it better, that he's some kind of spiritual mojo that gives you what you need. That's not the call to be a Christian. The Christian call is that you are radically in need of a Savior because something's radically wrong inside. You have to die to that allegiance and become alive to God through Christ. That your new life only begins when the old life is reckoned to be dead. You consider it dead. That you consider there nothing about it salvageable. Right? That, that's the objective reality of justification. On the other hand, some of the difficulty is the second one. The life of Christ is impossible without the life of Christ. That we maybe grab the first one, we, we thank Jesus for saving us, but we say, okay, but from here on out, I've got it, and I will make this happen. And we get frustrated because that's not how it goes. 
The life of Christ is impossible without the life of Christ, and that's the subjective work of the Holy Spirit, our sanctification. Us working in cooperation with His guiding and leading, and that's what this passage is pointing to today. So when you read verse 16, you kind of go, that's not very helpful. You're not telling me anything I already don't know, and it's not working. Help me out, Paul. This is kind of like when I was in high school soccer, and we were losing the game, and the coach called a timeout and called all of us in. And we're huffing and puffing because we were working hard. And he says, look, do you want to win this game? Yes, yes, we really do. Then put the ball in the goal. Well, that's true, but that's not very helpful, coach. He says, put the ball in the goal. Get out there. So when we read passages like this, we can say, well, that's true, but how is this helpful to me? Well, it's found in the way Paul used these beautiful metaphors, the metaphor for walk. Remember, in that culture, it wasn't something you did at 20 minutes at LA Fitness just to keep in shape. It was what you did in your life to get around from point A to point B. It was a common metaphor that if I'm going to do something, it requires a daily grind, something I'm consistently trying to do. One foot in front of the other every day, not once in a while, an ongoing process, continuity. But the fact that Paul makes it a verb, it's a command, it's not an option. He says, you need to walk ongoing, daily, as much as possible. You are consciously aware of your dependency on the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Well, Paul is asking these Galatians, in a sense, he's, saying, he's asking the question of whether or not you Galatians want to bear the kind of spiritual fruit that he's talking about in verse 22 and 23. And by bearing that kind of spiritual fruit, you control the passions of the flesh, the desires of the flesh mentioned in verse 17, and prevent the works of the flesh that he mentions in 1921. So he's asking him, do you want to bear that kind of fruit? To be able to have control over the flesh and not have the works of the flesh dominate your life? The obvious answer is yes. And so in verse 24 and 25, he offers them some keys to make that a reality. But what he's doing in verse 16 is highlighting the importance of the question or of this reality that you need to be walking by the Spirit. So he commands them, walk by the Spirit. But the reality is it's a battle. In verse 17, we roll into verse 17 and 18, it is a battle. The Anglican Bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle, says this, a true Christian is one who has not only peace of conscience, but war within. He may be be known by his warfare as well as his peace. You see, when you become a Christian, the war that you had against God, and the Bible says you are at war with God, if you are not a Christian, you are not morally neutral. The Bible is clear. James chapter 4 says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Romans 5 says, we were hostile towards him. The Bible's clear that if you are not one of His, you are at war with God. And what Ryle is saying is that when you become a Christian, the war you had against God is replaced with peace. But the peace you had with the world is now replaced by warfare because you have switched allegiances. And that's what verse 17 is getting at. It highlights this reality. There's going to be a constant conflict within us, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these two are opposed to one another. Which is why Paul says, walk diligently, daily, 
by the Spirit, not in your own morality, not in your cultivated Christian civilities. Good as those can be, you need to be walking empowered by the Spirit of God. Growth in gospel character is a a dance between that which is hard won and that which is freely given. It's it's hard won because it requires everything about us. It demands our emotions, our volition, our will, our action, our very lives need to be brought to bear on this experiment. But it's freely given because Christ has secured all the necessary resources we need to engage that battle. But it is a balance between what's hard won and freely given. Paul himself, as a matter of fact, understood this struggle. Keep your finger in Galatians. I want you to go to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 15. If you're new to reading your Bibles, it's just two books to the left. Romans chapter 7. And just, we get, we get this insight into Paul and the struggle of, of really living the gospel-centered life. He writes this, I do not understand my own actions, amen, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So, now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to, but the evil I do not want to do is the thing I keep on doing. But now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. Okay, stop there. Verse 20 is where I want us to end. The point I'm bringing out is that even Paul, this amazing apostle, understood the dynamic of the battle between the flesh and the spirit. And it's no doubt that the battle is so intense when you consider how radically contrasting these two trajectories of life are between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. So let's look at the contrast of gospel character. Back in uh, Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. They're obvious, he's saying. It's plain to see. Here they are. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. This is not an exhaustive list. There's 10,000 other ways the flesh will manifest itself. Here's just a few, Paul says. I warn you, as I warned you before when he was with them, that those who do such things, who practice this, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Look at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit, it's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's faithfulness, it's gentleness, self-control. Friends, you you don't have to be a, a theologian or rocket scientists to see that these are two very different visions of life. In part three of our sermon, we're going to dive into the difference, the contrast, much more in greater detail. What I just want you to realize now, that is our lifestyles have consequences. 
Well, you, may, you may not even agree with what, where Paul goes with this, but you have to agree that our lifestyle choices will bear consequences in direct keeping to our actions. This is just common sense. You don't even need to read the Bible to understand that. We have a Chinese proverb that captures the same concept. It says, be careful of your thoughts, for your thoughts become your words. Be careful of your words, because your words become actions. Be careful of your actions, because your actions become habits. Be careful of your habits, for your habits become character. Be careful of your character, for your character becomes your destiny. This is just common sense. You don't necessarily have to agree with Paul's end result to understand that your lifestyle will bear consequences in keeping with that lifestyle. Right? We, we learned this in high school horticulture, didn't we? It's, it's the law of sowing and reaping. Whatever you plant, you're going to get. If you plant apple seeds, you are not going to grow a coconut tree. You're going to get an apple tree. It's just the way the world works. And Paul says, but those who follow, live this lifestyle, the result will be that you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, let's be clear. Paul is not saying if you struggle or you have a momentary lapse in one of these areas. Paul is not talking about someone who is uh, struggling with that behavior or is fighting against that lifestyle but has occasional moments of weakness and engages in that. The flesh is strong. Who amongst us here could not look at that list and say, yeah, sometimes, somehow, this week, the situation might be different, but it's the same kind of degree, maybe, of the kind of thing I struggle with this week. Impurity of some sort, anger, selfishness, envy. So Paul is not saying if you ever experience this, you're not inheriting the kingdom. He says, those who practice this, those whose lives are marked by this, those whose character is characterized by this, they're not going to inherit the kingdom. Just as those who are characterized and marked by the others, they will see God. There is no law against them, he says. So he says, here's the command. This is what you need to be doing and be prepared for battle because the contrast is severe. And then he gives us the key in verses 24 and 25. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So the argument of chapter 5 up to this point is clear. Paul says the result of our gospel freedom should be a character in keeping with that freedom, and that is characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, not by the works of the flesh. But how do we connect the one to the other? And he says it, and he gives us two statements, one in the negative and one in the positive. Do you notice that there? In the negative, it's crucify the flesh. In the positive, it's walk by the Spirit. Negatively, we crucify the flesh. Positively, we walk by the Spirit. Now, I want to be clear about something. Notice in Paul here in Galatians 5, crucifying the flesh is something that we do. Something that we do. It's not something that is done to us. Like Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified. Or in Romans 6.6 where he says, the old flesh has been crucified. See, through a, through a faith union with Christ, we have been crucified with Him in His death, and we rise with Him in new life. 
but notice he changes it here. It's not something external that has been done to us. This is something we do. You see, Paul is picking up the, the great metaphor, that vivid metaphor that Jesus himself used of Christian discipleship, right? Mark chapter 8. He says, if you want to be my disciple, what do you need to do? Pick up your cross and follow me. Paul is simply teasing that out to its logical conclusion. Pick up your cross, follow him, and figuratively speaking, nail yourself to that cross. So he's just working with the same metaphor that Jesus introduced about discipleship. Now, let me just briefly in our remaining time talk about three elements, three aspects of crucifixion that I actually think really are helpful for us. Number one, our rejection of the old self is to be pitiless. Crucifixion was probably, without doubt, the most cruel form of torturous execution you could possibly imagine. You did not use this kind of execution on anyone except the most wretched criminals that the government despised, that the society wanted to get rid of. It was a pitiless way to die. When Paul says you have to crucify the flesh, the same kind of mentality that the, 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 the state and the government would have to the criminal that they would crucify, no pity, no deference, no regard, Paul is saying you have to take to your old self. There can be no misunderstanding that this is your mortal enemy and it needs to be done away with. Crucify it. They would have all known the vivid pictures in their minds of watching the cruel, cruel, cold callousness of a man or woman being crucified. Paul says, be that callous to your old nature. Be pitiless with it. But secondly, our rejection of our old self, with that, Paul says, it's going to be painful, right? Crucifixion was excruciatingly painful. Which one of us doesn't know the acute pain of renouncing the fleeting pleasures of sin, right? Roman, uh, Hebrews 9.25 says that sin has fleeting pleasures. Why else would we sin? Because we like it. Can we just be honest with that? Sin does something for you. It gives you something. It makes you feel a certain way that you like. That's why you do it. Why do you think people will lash out in anger? It's because they know that anger is going to get them something. It makes them feel justified for a moment. It gives them power. Sin always gives us something, friends. It may not be a violent thing like anger that we so visibly see, but maybe having that juicy morsel of gossip that no one else knows, but you do. And you're the first to introduce it. Oh, you're special. You, you have the inside knowledge. Sin gives us something. The Bible's very upfront with that. Why else would we do it? Why else would we engage in it? Why else is it so hard to turn away? But like Proverbs says, Proverbs 20, 17, like bread uh, earned through deceit is sweet on the lips, it turns to gravel in your mouth. And, and how the writer of Hebrews says that sin has pleasures, but they're fleeting. Don't forsake a long-term gain for a short-term loss. We have to recognize when we're going to crucify the old man, it's going to be painful because we used to get something out of that sin, out of that behavior that we are giving up now. We're giving up lashing out in anger to entrust that God will take vengeance. 
We're giving up that, that refuge that makes us feel accepted to realize I'm accepted in Christ and I don't have to be part of the in crowd if that's what I need to do. When we crucify the old flesh, we have to realize it's going to be painful. So we have to be pitiless. We have to know it for what it is. We have to realize it's going to be painful. And then third and finally, when we reject the old self, it has to be, it must be decisive. Crucifixion was a very gradual death. You could take days to die, but you were going to die. And they would guard the, the victims and wait for them to die. And Paul says, you can crucify your flesh. It has to be decisive. Don't nail it to the cross and then come back and go, mm, maybe, I'll just, maybe I'll just wiggle this little knee. Come on, just maybe I'll. Don't fondle your sin. Don't caress your sin. Don't long for your sin. It has to be decisive. You must know what it is, your enemy. You must recognize it's going to be painful because you're not going to get what it used to give you, and it must be decisive. You are not going to take it down from that cross. So often, when we're trying to deal with our sin, we do trying to take it back off the cross, don't we? Because it gave us something. And maybe it wasn't that bad to begin with. And we fail to crucify the old man. So Paul says, if you want to walk by the Spirit, if you want to have that, excuse me, that fruit of the Spirit, crucify the flesh. That crucifixion has got to be pitiless, decisive, and it's going to be painful. Secondly, in the positive, he says, walk by the Spirit. Now, I'm really going to j- jump into this in detail in part three, so I'm just going to simply say this about it. The key to winning the battle for gospel character is not so much in fighting the flesh, because after all, you've crucified it, so it can't put up much of a fight anymore. You are counting it dead. The key is to feed the Spirit, right? So let me make that real quick and easy. It's not so much about fighting your flesh, feed the Spirit, right? So if I tell you, don't think about a pink elephant, Do not think about a pink elephant. Those elephants, those big elephants that are pink, don't think about it. What do you do? You're thinking about that pink elephant, even though I'm telling you don't think about the pink elephant. Isn't that how we deal with our sin? I don't want to deal with this sin, but man, I I do this, and I'm so bad at that. You're just thinking about the sin. Scripture says, feed the Spirit. Look what the Bible says. I have some verses written on the screens. Romans 8, 5, and 6. For those who live according to the flesh, they're going to set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, what do they do? They set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Why? Because to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Look at this passage from Colossians 3. If then you've been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not the things that are on the earth. We're going to go into greater detail about what that is to walk in the Spirit, but the takeaway point this morning is do not be fighting the flesh. Feed the Spirit. So, gospel character from Galatians 5. It is commanded of us, but it's going to be a battle because the contrast is so radical. But the key, Paul says, is to crucify the flesh. But more importantly, which we'll get to soon again, is to walk in the Spirit. Our goal, my goal this morning, was just to lay the foundational elements so that when we revisit this passage in a few weeks, you will already have a way to sense of what Paul is getting at and why this matters. We'll talk about, like I said, the, the, the nature of desire. And the fact that when we hear the Bible say the lusts of the flesh, most of you are probably thinking something about sexuality or pornography. That has nothing to do with lusts of the flesh. 
But we're going to talk about how desires can be so good but so bad and how Paul talks about that in our spiritual growth and then look closely at the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit and then these verbs, walking, living, uh, being led by and, and keeping in step with the Spirit. So I hope you'll be here when we dive back in. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, being able to spend an extended period of, of time looking at these 10 verses in Galatians 5. I pray for my brothers and sisters, it has it's been good for their soul as it has been for mine to just think about this and, and marinate in it. But Lord, we're not going to trust ourselves to simply a process of listening. We, we want to apply what we've been learning and ask that, Spirit, would you be part and present in our lives? Would there be a daily dependence upon your ministry to us as you are seeking to apply the benefits of our salvation through sanctification? And at the end of the day, we recognize that though some of us will be sanctified in greater degrees of others, we will all one day stand glorified because of the work that Jesus has done on our behalf and bring you great glory and praise. The Father, while we are here, help us as a community of believers to help sanctify one another for your glory and our good. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.